<laughs> I didn't think you guys had enough kid cuteness today. You needed a little bit more, so I thought I'd add that video. But isn't that what Christmas is all about? It's all about giving. John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, The wise men gave, they came to the house, and they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and of myrrh. All this month, we have been looking at the gifts that the wise men gave to the Christ child, and what these gifts tell us about the real gift, Jesus Christ. And we think about these gifts, and we think about this scene behind me, and I'm going to blow your mind a little bit today, because we always think, we think about the nativity, we think about the one that maybe was at grandma's house, right? We think about the shepherds, and we think about the sheep, and maybe a cow, and, and chances are you probably think about three wise men coming in on camels with gifts in their hands, and maybe you see an angel at the top of a pitched roof, and then there's baby Jesus in the manger with his mother kneeling by the manger, and Joseph standing dignified in the background. The challenge with that scene is that very likely there were probably not just three magi. There was probably a whole group of people that came from the east. And they came, we say three because we had three gifts, but they came in a great caravan. There could have been many more. Not only that, but we also know that they probably went to a house. By the time the wise men traveled the distance to get to the, to the scene, Jesus was very likely not an infant. Most scholars believe that, that he was maybe a year old, maybe 18 months old or so, perhaps even older. And that changes my visual of the wise men bowing down before a baby. How many of you have had a two-year-old in your life? Raise your hand if you've ever had a two-year-old. You ever been around one? How many of you as parents, you judge the parents of two-year-olds before you had your own two-year-old? You'd be in a store, and the child would be throwing a fit, and you would think, those parents need to get it together until you have one. And we say you're not supposed to negotiate with terrorists, but <laughs> two-year-olds are an exception. You're like, here's my iPhone, here's my video, watch Baby Shark for the thousandth time. But here are the magi, and they're traveling from a great distance, and they bow down before Jesus, the Christ child. This moment where there's this great awareness of what the Christ child would be doing, giving his life. We're told they entered the house and they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down, they worshiped Jesus, and they gave him gifts, very unusual gifts to give a child. Gold, valuable in and of itself, monetarily speaking, but it has been thought throughout history that gold was fit for a king, and so this celebrates the kingship of Jesus. Frankincense, which Josh talked about last week, symbolizes Jesus as our great high priest who would offer his life for us. And yet he's the one who also understands us, sympathizes with us, understands our needs. And today we're going to talk about myrrh, which many people probably don't know much about myrrh, but myrrh is this valuable gum-like substance that is actually used 17 different times in the Bible. Occasionally, myrrh would have been used as an antiseptic. For example, if you know the story of Jesus when he uh, died on the cross, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh to dull the pain. But Jesus rejected it because he wanted to feel the full force and weight 
of that moment in our sin. More commonly, though, myrrh was used as a, an embalming uh, element. It was used to embalm the dead. In other words, myrrh would have been used when Jesus gave his life to help prepare his body for burial. So myrrh, given by the wise men, represented Jesus as a suffering servant, the Lamb of God, who was born to take away the sins of the world. Now, if you go all the way back into the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 53, you're going to see a prophecy that was written about Jesus 700 years before he came. How many of you are football fans? Raise your hand real high. (laughs) Uh, Football fans. Uh, How many of you love the Bengals? Would you raise your hand? How many of you are sad right now? But we'll see what happens. Maybe Browning can get it together and continue a great run. I don't know. But football fans, what if I told you I have the power to predict the two teams that would be in the next Super Bowl? Now, that would be impressive, perhaps lucky. But what if I predicted the exact score of that game, exactly who would win, down to the point? How many of you think that would be impressive? That would be very shocking, and you would maybe want to sidle up with me and make a couple of bets. But let's say that football is still here 700 years from now. Let's say that 700 years from now, I predict the two opposing teams in the Super Bowl, and I write it down, the exact score of that game 700 years from now, and the exact winner of that game. That would make me a prophet like no other. And Isaiah essentially did the same thing. He said 700 years before it ever happened, he said, there's going to be something that happens. There's going to be a birth, the birth of Christ. And he gave a very detailed account of what the suffering servant, Jesus, would endure on our behalf. And we're going to look at what Isaiah describes 700 years before it actually happened. He prophesies it. And the first thing Isaiah tells us about is our problem. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah says, we've all gone astray. Not some, not a few, not just a a couple, all of us. Everyone who's ever been born, ever lived in all of human history has gone astray and turned to their own way. Another way to say it is we're all sinners. Nobody is perfect. Nobody has it all together. We're all in the same boat. As good as you all look today, we're all a mess in some way or another. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And Isaiah the prophet then describes it further to say that we're all like sheep. Now, guys, that is not a compliment. If Isaiah said we're all like lions, that might have been a compliment. We're all like eagles, that might have been a compliment. But he chose sheep. He was essentially saying you're, you're, we're not the brightest crayons in the box, right? I mean, we're, he could have picked a lot of animals. You can train a dog. You can train a bird. You can even train a hamster. You can train an elephant if you've been to the circus. I'll admit, some of you can even train a cat. But you can't really train a sheep. You ever gone to the circus to watch the sheep show? That that was a tricky sentence right there. I'll just tell you that right now. That could have come out wrong. That could have come out bad. Um, Sheep is not a compliment. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Sheep were basically known for three things. They're weak. They're not bright, and they tend to wander. They're weak. Think about that. They're kind of defenseless. If a coyote or some animal comes after a sheep, how does a sheep defend itself? 
It doesn't have claws. It doesn't have fangs. The color makes them stand out. And they're not that bright. In fact, there was a story, true story, uh, in 2005 in Turkey, 1,500 dumb sheep followed each other off a cliff. 1,500 of them. You would think after the first one, the second one, the third one, the fourth one, the sixth one, the seventh one, somebody would have said, this is not a good plan. But 1,500 of them went over the cliff. The bad news is 400 of them died. The good news is the rest of them lived because the first 400 provided a nice cheap pillow. <laughs> they are not that bright. I think that this is illustrated well in this uh, video that I'm about to show you. Check this out. love how the guy just walks off. He's like, forget it, forget it. Sheep tend to wander. Sheep tend to do dumb stuff. And when Isaiah calls us sheep, it is not a compliment. He's saying, you need a lot of help because you tend to go away from God's plan. You tend to choose your own path. And so this applies to all of us, okay? When he says we all like sheep have gone astray, what he's saying is every single one of us tend to wander away from God's plan. You know this is true. You know that in your own life, your own history, your own story, that there have been times where you've wandered away from God's best in your life, where you've decided your own pathway, you've thought, this is the way I'm going to go, and then you look back and go, that was so dumb. And then not very much longer, you do the same thing again, and you think, that was so dumb. That's why Isaiah says, we're all like sheep. That's our problem. And then he gives us a solution. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We left God's path to follow our path, yet the Lord laid on Christ, the suffering servant, the one who is be called Jesus, he laid on him the sins of all of us. Now remember, this is 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah prophesied about a solution that God was going to offer for all of us. Here's what Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 7 says. Listen to these words. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, a prophecy of the crucifixion before crucifixion was even invented. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. In this prophecy, Isaiah is describing the very death of, of our suffering servant, Jesus. What would he endure for us? He's saying Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He took our punishment. He took our payment. He became one of us and stood in our place. He was oppressed. He was treated harshly. He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And if you have ever been hurt, if you've ever been mistreated, if you've ever been rejected or overlooked or unjustly criticized or misunderstood, Jesus understands that. 
It was prophesied of him that he would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We went our own way. We violated what God said for our lives, and our sin weighed him down. We thought that we were doing right, but instead, our sin deserved punishment. You know, sometimes we look at the nativity scene, we get caught up in the magic and the wonder of that. We think about the birth of Jesus, and we walk by a nativity set, and we sing away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. Or silent night, holy night, all is calm and all is bright. But it seems that we might forget that the peace of the manger would ultimately lead to the pain of the cross. I saw an image this week on Facebook, and since we have a new baby in our house, it struck me in a particular way this year where Mary and Jesus were together. And here's Mary, the loving mother, providing for her baby. And then here she is at the end of his life after he was crucified or caring for him. When you see the baby in the manger, you must also think about the cross. You must understand the magnitude of his suffering, the depth of his love. Don't be casual about your commitment to him. When, when you see the depth of his love, you can't casually say, oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church when I have time. Yeah, I might pray over the food. No, when you understand what he did for you, the declaration of divine love that he has for you, the only reasonable response is to wholly and completely follow him. For a moment, I'll try to describe it, but I, I won't be able to do it adequately. Start with Gethsemane. Here he is in the garden, the place that Jesus wrestled with God when he got a glimpse of the suffering that was to come. And he said to his disciples, could you just stay and pray because I'm in my hour of need? And they fell asleep. And then he begins to pray and pray, and, and he just prays, remove this cup of suffering from me. It, the, the Bible says that he was so filled with anguish that sweat dropped from his brow, and it was filled with blood. It was something you experience under extreme trauma. He, he was anguished to the point of death, the Bible says. That's how bad it was. Is there another way? Immediately followed by that, Judas, one of his friends, his close friends, came and gave a kiss on his cheek, and he was arrested. Judas pointed him out to his accusers. Jesus was falsely accused, unfairly tried, sentenced to death by brutal crucifixion, stripped, naked, publicly exposed, humiliated, and ashamed. They would put a crown of thorns on his head, one to two-inch thorns going into his brow, and the beating would start. Weighed down, uh, by the cross after he had been whipped and scourged. Isaiah says that they would pull his beard even and that he was so disfigured that he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. Weak, suffering, alone, bore the cross, weighing about 100 pounds, forced him to carry it 650 yards on a path known as the way of suffering to Golgotha to be crucified on the cross, to take the nails in his wrists and his feet, to be exposed in that way, to die a brutal death. The most painful part was when the innocent one who had never sinned bore the sins of the world. He was there in our place, understanding not, not only the anguish of the pain of death, but also the anguish of bearing the sins of the world. 
knowing that people right around the cross were rejecting and refusing him. And yet still he stood in our place, courageous, sacrificial. And the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before this ever took place, predicted his death, but not only that, predicted his life. Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. How did he know 700 years before that a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, would offer his grave 700 years earlier? Because God had a plan. God had a solution. He knew that he would go, we would go our way, but he, he created us anyway. He knew that we would rebel, but he loved us anyway. He knew the cost. He knew what our sins would do. But in his holiness, he demanded a punishment. And yet he said, I love them so much that I'm going to take the punishment. I'm going to take it upon myself. I'm going to go through the pain because I love them so much. Such a powerful moment. Don't miss this, friends. In Jewish history, there's a story of the people being enslaved in Egypt. And God sent a messenger named Moses to tell Pharaoh, let the Hebrews go or there will be great punishment in Egypt. The Pharaoh ignored the warning and so God sent plagues upon the Egyptians. The last plague was the death would come to the firstborn male. But then God also provided a plan. He told the Israelites, take the blood of an innocent lamb, spread it on the doorpost of your home, and when the death angel passes, death will pass you by and you will be saved. This came to be known as the Passover feast celebrated by the Jews even until this day. And the Hebrews were freed. And that story became a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. Jesus Christ died on Passover. Coincidence? I don't think so. God had a plan from the very beginning that he would be telling all of the world that Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb, the one who is innocent, the one who would give his life for us, the one that if you have his blood sprinkled on your heart, you accept his payment for, for, for your sin. That, that when death passes you by, this eternal separation from God, that God himself would pay the price for you. Friends, what separates Christianity from all other world religions is that God would become flesh, that he would be pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so we would be made whole, and by his stripes we would be healed. So when you visualize the manger and the wise men, and they give him the gift of myrrh, the substance used to embalm the dead, understand that God was foreshadowing what was to come. The Lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world. Don't just pass by that moment, that sweet nativity, without thinking about the cross of Calvary. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, And after he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That is a prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The payment for sin would be satisfied. Forgiveness would be offered. Jesus, our suffering servant, would once again see the light of life. He died on Friday, but Sunday morning, he would be resurrected from the dead to prove that death had been defeated, that the grave is empty, and that Jesus Christ is victorious. So the question is for us, how will we respond? I think Matthew 2 tells us a great way for us to respond. Here's what happened to the Magi. It says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. 
And they opened their treasures and presented him gifts with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod the king, they returned to their own country by another route. Here's what they did. They saw Jesus and they bowed down. I just think that the right response to the king of the universe is to respond humbly, to bow down. They bowed down and they worshiped him. And I think the Bible lays out clearly how we should respond to him humbly. We believe in him. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ is our Savior. We confess that belief to other people and to God. We declare, I love you. We humbly repent. We realize that we are not perfect, that we are like sheep, and that we do need God's help in our life. And I love that God has given us then an outward expression of our faith called baptism. And just as Jesus died and was buried and raised again, we are buried in baptism, dying to our old way and being raised to new life. And on the 17th, next weekend, we're going to have that prepared for you so that those of you who want to be baptized, you can do that. How many of you know we had a big event in our life just on Monday this week? Uh, our daughter Hannah was married. Here's a picture of them. Uh, and uh, they were celebrated, and they thought it was just perfect. People asked me, and it was perfect. They asked me, did you cry? I mean, yes, I cried the entire time. Not like, not like, <laughs> but like, you know, like, boing, you know. It was just really, uh, and Josh cried. I mean, he's like, I cried because you cried. I'm like, I know, I know. Um, I cried because, like, literally, you're giving your daughter away. That, that phrase is more real to me than ever. I'm giving her away. And yet I had to pay for it. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm not giving her away. I had to pay for it. Like, I'm like, y'all should be paying me, I'm thinking. And then she takes their name. Pay me. Pay me for that. We did a good job. And, but, but here's the powerful thing about marriages and weddings. Jake and Hannah loved each other prior to the Met wedding, but they weren't married to each other. They said, I love you. They declared. They were like, we love each other, but they weren't married. But it wasn't until after that. What, what was the difference? The difference was they stood before God and their family and friends, and they committed their lives. They said, we're in. We're all in till death do us part. And I think the way to respond to Jesus is just to say, we're all in. We believe in you. You're publicly declaring, we believe in you. God, we love you. I repent of my sin. I confess that you are Lord of my life. I'm declaring that. And then you're, then you're expressing that through baptism, where you die to your old way and you're being raised to new life and, and you're saying to everybody around you, I love Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. The Magi bowed down and then they worshiped him. They gave, they, they worshiped with their very lives. They sacrificed by coming to such a long distance and we respond by worshiping him. Every day, the way we live our lives in the reality of who he is is what's called worship. One of the reasons church is so important is because we're coming together to acknowledge that we need him. We need his love. We need his help. And I love the fact that we had like 50-some kids up here today singing. And how many of you know, I'm glad I'm not in the kids' department today. Amen. How many of you can say amen on that? I'm glad I'm up here, you know, and they're having fun over there. But why do we do that? Because we want to teach these little kids just like you do, that there's something out there that's greater than them, something out there that matters more than just their own individual thoughts and dreams, something more than just their, their desire to be good academically or good in terms of financially or good in terms of athletically. 
that there's something out there that's bigger than them. And we're trying to teach our kids that. And with that, that is called worship, that they would live in the light of what Jesus did for them. Here's how Jesus himself says we're to respond. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and on the third day would be raised to life. Then he said to all of them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. He says, you want to be my disciple? Trust me in everything. And when he said that, he said, you want to be my disciple? You then deny yourself. It's not about you. Take up your cross. In other words, die to yourself. He said, follow me. This is not a hobby. This is not an add-on. This is not something that helps you feel good while, you sell, while we celebrate Santa and go to Grandma's house. It's God becoming flesh, being our sacrifice. And when you understand that, it overwhelms you. It overtakes your life. And I love how the story of the Magi ends because it says once they encountered Jesus, they decided not to go back the way that they came, the way that back to Herod, the king, and then back to their homeland. Instead, they went another route. And I just think that it's so powerful because when you encounter Jesus, he changes everything. Dr. Tony Evans tells this story. He said one time at Christmas, my wife wanted some rat to wrap some boxes to use from decorations. He said she took eight empty boxes and had them wrapped to use as a decoration at the front door. He said those boxes sat in front of our house impeccably wrapped, topped with bows, but empty. He said, I didn't worry about a thief coming and stealing any of the wrapped boxes in front of our house. There wasn't anything in them. He said, a lot of us are well wrapped, but there's nothing going on on the inside. And he said, unfortunately, Today, too many people don't know what it means to be truly blessed. They just want to be well-wrapped. True, authentic Christian living starts on the inside, and then the evidence of that life works its way out. This year, make sure that you're not so focused on the outward trappings of what looks good or what sounds good or what somebody else might think is good or what, how you look on the outside to people. You'd be a whole lot more concerned about what's going on on the inside. Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And out of that inward, that inward reality will come the outward expression of love and devotion and faith that other people will notice. It's not about what we own. It's not about what we do. It is about who we are in light of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, what he has given for us. He is the suffering servant who came to take away the sins of the world. And aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that he is? God, we give you thanks today for loving us. Thank you for your great sacrifice for us. God, thank you for giving your all on the cross for us. Thank you for being the suffering servant who gave your life in our place. And God, in response to that, we just say, God, we love you. We need your help. We're never going to get this right on our own. We're never going to be perfect, God. And so, God, we just pray today that you would help us to be people who live in light of, of the cross of Christ. And we ask this in Christ's name.